Let's take a minute and pray before we open the Scriptures together today. Lord God, routines are good. When we do something again and again and again, it becomes familiar. It feels comfortable. Usually that's a good thing. But sometimes routine can make our hearts go to sleep. And so every, every time you go to a Christian worship service, the scriptures are opened and read. And it becomes such a routine that maybe our hearts go to sleep. Would you wake us up today? Wake us up. Help us to see new glory in Jesus today. Glory that's always been there. Glory that maybe we have seen before, but we haven't seen it today before. This is a new moment, a new time, a new opportunity for us to fill this moment with the glory of Jesus. Would you wake us up and get us ready to do that as the Holy Spirit speaks words of truth to us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So during the season of Advent, Steve mentioned already, right, we, Christmas trees are still up, poinsettias, Advent candles lit. There's this season that the church goes through of asking the question, why did Jesus come? What is it that he came to do? We don't get tired of asking and answering that question. We do it every year. We've done it every year for 2,000 years. There's enough there to keep us busy for as long as it takes before Jesus returns. That's what we continue to do this morning. We've been using the Gospel of Mark to do that this year at InTown, mainly because over the past few years we've looked at the other Gospels to ask those questions. Today we finish the opening verses of Mark's gospel. And we ask those questions. Why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? Today's scripture reading is fairly short. I will read it for us. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, it's John the Baptist. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We just passed through this season of celebrating Christmas. It involves a lot of waiting, a lot of preparing, a lot of looking forward. And, um, you know, some of us are already starting to look forward to next Christmas. Like, the countdown starts on the day. As soon as the last package is opened, you, you start looking forward to the next round. Um, sometimes there are, are um, shoppers who love gift-giving, right? And they start thinking in January and February about what to get you for next Christmas. That's their love language. And, and they, there's all this looking forward, this waiting and then the day comes, and it's here. And all the packages are open, and all the goodies are eaten, and, and now what? Now what? Well, now you start to clean up the boxes and the bows, and 
you try to get back to normal eating habits. You try to get back to more normal sleep habits. Um, now you might not have all day every day free to hang out with friends and family. You have to start thinking about work schedules again. And now, after all the waiting and it comes and the time is fulfilled, you kind of go back to normal. When we think about the coming of Jesus, we might think it works that way, but it doesn't. When Jesus comes, nothing ever goes back to normal. The verses we read, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. It will never again be the time of waiting for Jesus to come. He has come. There is no going back. Verse 15 says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Another way to translate that phrase, the kingdom of God has drawn near. It has drawn near, and it will never be far away again. There is no going back. There is no going back to normal. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom near forever. So now what? Well, we don't clean up boxes and bows after the coming of Jesus. Jesus says we do two things. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, so now repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel is a word that means good news. It's good news that the kingdom has come near because of Jesus. So now what? Repent and believe. It's an invitation. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom near, and he came to bring us into the kingdom that he brought near. Those are the two things that we want to look at a little more deeply today. One of the things I love about these early verses of Mark's gospel, um, Mark tells us a whole lot about the coming of Jesus in just 15 verses. So we get to slow down and think a little more deeply about some of these details. What does it mean that Jesus came to bring God's kingdom near? Well, God has a vision to redeem everything, to, to make his good world thoroughly, completely good again by removing every trace of evil from it, traces of evil that were introduced into it through rebellion against him, rebellion on two levels, human rebellion against God, the Father, Creator, King, and, and then an angels rebelling against God as well. And one day, every trace of rebellion will be removed. God has a vision that all things would be redeemed. Where would we learn more about that vision? Well, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer together, we're hearing what Jesus has to say about that vision. Think of just these opening phrases of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, the vision is that your name would be honored, worshiped, glorified, the vision that God has is that in the end, everyone would perfectly enjoy all that he is. Know him as our father and honor and celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of his name. Perfect enjoyment of everything that God is forever. That's part of this vision of God's kingdom. The next thing we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. Right? Unpacking these familiar words. Thy will, uh, thy kingdom come. 
Thy kingdom come. What, what are we praying for? We're praying, Father, you are the king over everything. And his vision is that one day, everywhere in the earth, everywhere on this planet, the fact that he is king would be something that we celebrate, a glad celebration of his royal rule. Not a jealousy, I wish I could be the one to rule. Not a frustration, mm, God's rule is so hard to deal with. I, I, I wish somebody else would write better rules for living in this world. But a glad celebration of his reign and rule. And then the next thing we pray is, Father, not only do we want your name to be enjoyed forever, not only do we want we, your royal rule to come, Thy will be done. Father, we want everyone to perfectly participate in all that you have to offer. Thy will be done, not just for me, but for everyone. This is God's vision. Every time Jesus leads us in this prayer, he is teaching us what the Father's vision is. This vision that in the end there would be perfect enjoyment of who he is, honoring his name, glad celebration of his royal rule, his kingdom coming, perfect participation, not resistance, not rebellion, participation in everything that is part of his will and in nothing that's outside of his will. Father, that's your vision. And Jesus, when he shows up in Galilee after he's been baptized, John the Baptist has been arrested Jesus comes and he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. That vision, that vision described in the early part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is saying to us, I am about to accomplish everything that's necessary for that vision to become a reality. God's good world is under a curse because of rebellion against him, at the cross, I'm going to break that curse. And, and for human beings to participate in this vision, honoring God, bending to his will instead of our own, that's going to take a powerful kind of heart and life transformation. And in my crucifixion, the Holy Spirit's power is going to be unleashed to begin that kind of change in the lives of God's people and you've never seen anyone live out this vision. You've never seen anyone know God as Father at every moment. You've never seen anyone always do the Father's will. You've never seen anyone perfectly enjoy celebrating the Father's name and the Father's rule. And Jesus says, you're about to see it in me. Everything that needs to happen to bring that vision into reality. I am about to accomplish it. Good news, the kingdom is, of God is at hand, and there's no going back. Jesus is saying this kind of power has come into the world, and you can't put it back in the bottle. Now, we have to ask a question. If that's true, if that kind of power has been unleashed and Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God has drawn near, 
Then why has it been 2,000 years and we're still waiting for the fullness of that vision to arrive? I think we find the answer in verse 15. As Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. This gap between the drawing near of the kingdom and the complete fulfillment of God's vision forever is the time when Jesus wants this invitation into the kingdom, this invitation for people everywhere to repent and believe. He wants that good news to be spread. Jesus came to bring God's kingdom near, but he came also to bring us into that kingdom. Think of it this way. Um, I got a happy light for Christmas this year. That's what I'm calling it anyway. It's a little, it's a COVID lamp, right? It's, it's supposed to bring bright light into your life and, and sort of mimic the effects of sunshine on your mood since COVID has a negative effect on your mood, <laughs> and 2020 has not had enough sunshine in it. So I got this happy light for Christmas, and it comes in a little box about this big, and um, what are you supposed to do with it when somebody hands you that box on Christmas Day? Well, you're not supposed to sit there holding the box. Thanks. This thing that has potential for great good is now come near. It's in my life. Thank you. Thanks, Tricia. Not sure what she's trying to tell me by giving me this happy light, but thanks. That's not the way it's supposed to work, right? What are you supposed to do? Well, the first thing you're supposed to do is take the wrapping paper off the box. <laughs> Then do you hold it and say thanks? No, the next thing you're supposed to do is to take the thing out of the box and set it up on your desk and look at it, right? No, find the cord, plug it in, turn it on, <laughs> right? There has, you have to make a beginning. You, you have to actually participate in this thing that has the potential to bring great good into your world. And that's what Jesus is saying here when he comes into Galilee and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, this great power to, to bring goodness into your life and into your world is here, but now you have to make a start with it. Okay, Jesus, what do I do? How do I unwrap it and take it out of the box? Jesus gives us two simple words, repent and believe. Now the problem is, those words are easy to misunderstand, so we're going to have to dig a little deeper. Repent. What does that mean? Well, it depends on what religion you believe. If you believe a religion called moralism, we've, we've talked about this before, right? There are kind of three main approaches to spirituality in the history of humanity. One of them is moralism. Moralism says Here's the word repent and translates it this way. Make yourself feel so bad that God will have to love you. That's what repentance is if you're a moralist. 
I am going to feel so awful. I'm going to punish myself. I, I'm going to um, I'm going to work so hard to show how bad I feel. If if it's a prayer, I'll pray it. If it's a public humiliating apology, I'll do it. Whatever it takes, I'm gonna I'm gonna grovel lower than you've ever seen before, and then God will have to love me. Moralism is all about we do stuff that makes God have to love us. Repenting through that framework is, is basically saying, I let God down, I will do better. There's another approach, humanism, right? Another sort of basic human approach to spirituality. It says we're not certain that there's anything else out there. We're not certain that there is a God. Uh, Maybe there is, but we'll never know it. And if there is a God, we could know maybe a little bit about that God, but not enough to be confident. So we're basically up to us, humanism. We tell a humanist to repent, and what they hear is, "Uh, I'm going to have a hard time with that because I can't feel bad about violating God's standards. I'm not really sure there's a God out there, and I'm not really sure there are standards. And if there are, I don't know exactly what they might be. So it's hard to feel generically bad about maybe violating some standards that I'm not too familiar with. And yet I really do feel guilty about doing awful things and being an awful person. So what am I supposed to do with it? Well, the humanist says, I'm going to come to this conclusion. I feel bad that I violated my own standards. I let myself down. Prince Harry got into some trouble uh, several years ago. England's Prince Harry. And... um, He was in a place he shouldn't have been, wearing fewer clothes than he should have been. And he said, I let myself down. That's the first thing he said. I probably let myself down. And you. But he started with, I probably let myself down. Recently, a British soccer player was mocking the existence of the coronavirus and um, attributing its uh, effects to people of a certain ethnicity went online immediately to say, you know, I let myself down. That's what you do when you're a humanist. If you're not sure that there are standards out there given by someone else, you can't be sure you let them down. So you start with the only thing you know. I feel really bad that I violated my own code. Moralism says I let God down, I promise to to do better. Humanism says I let myself down, I promise to do better. It's all about me. I let somebody down and I will make it right. The gospel is so much more real than that. Gospel repentance starts with a relationship. It says somebody outside myself exists. Repentance is not all about me. (laughs) Somebody outside of me exists. I have a Father in heaven. He has committed himself to me in faithful love, and it's only right that I commit myself to him in faithful love. 
And what hurts right now is that, is that there's a relationship and I have violated it by failing to return to him the same kind of faithful love that he has given me. I didn't just let myself down, Lord. I hurt you by acting like this relationship with you means nothing to me. And right now what I want more than anything else is that relationship to be whole, to be made right. Moralism says right now what I want more than anything is to know that I've groveled hard enough. I did it right. I earned my way back into God's good standing, right? And humanism, I, I, I want everyone else to know that I'm trying my best and I'm doing hard. Right? I, I'm going to work hard at it. And the gospel sets us free to say, Lord, the thing I want more than anything else is this relationship with you to be whole forever. I want to know that you are my father and that I am your daughter. I am your son, and nothing will ever change that. Gospel repentance is, is painfully honest about our failures, about our sins, about all the ways that we have not loved each other and not loved God. It's honest about those things because it's driven by an even deeper desire to be made right with the beloved one. Can I just point out for a moment, do you see how if, if, if we lived that kind of gospel repentance and applied it to every relationship we have, it would change the whole world? What, what if in your workplace, every time a relationship got strained, your first response was, hey, it bothers me that we're not right. Can we get right? That means more to me than whether I might not get the promotion. <laughs> that means more to me than, than whether my bonus next year might get affected. If we started to live that way with our classmates in school, every relationship gets changed because suddenly we're not trying to do the big dramatic apology that wins our way back into favor. We're not going around making it all about me. Well, I let myself down. So what's good in our relationship with God is good in every relationship. The gospel is good. And so Jesus calls us to restore relationship with God. He says, repent. He says, if you come to God wanting your relationship with him to be restored then he will be your father in heaven forever because I have done everything necessary to make that reality happen. So come to God and tell him that you want that relationship with him to be restored. Tell him what you've done that didn't honor the relationship. <laughs> And tell him that now more than anything, you want to be made right with him. Jesus says, he will never turn you away. What if I don't do it right? That's not what Jesus says at all. When Jesus invites us to repent, he is freeing us from, I will do better. I will get it right. 
He is saying, I have done everything to make you right with God. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the next word Jesus says. Repent and believe in this good news. Believe doesn't mean something irrational, leap of faith. You just have to believe. Okay, here's a picture I hope you haven't seen. I'm on thin ice here because this might be someone's favorite Christmas song, and I'm about to really diss it. Everybody's got a list of their um, least favorite Christmas songs. Top on my list is Last Christmas. It will always be top on my list of least favorite Christmas songs. But also, somewhere in the top three of our family list is a song by the country band Alabama called Thistle Hair, the Christmas Bear. Anybody tracking with me so far? Any Alabama fans in the room? Any, uh, anybody who's ever heard Thistle Hair, the Christmas Bear? Well, you can still buy this thanks to the wonders of the Internet. This is a picture of a vinyl disc. You can buy the single. Play it on your record player. Thistle Hair, the Christmas Bear. Spreading the good news everywhere about Christmas time and what it means. And all the little boys and girls out there love thistle hair or something like that, right? I try to forget the words every year. My kids scheme and won't let me. There has been a Spotify playlist in my house that was nothing but thistle hair a hundred times in a row or something like that. But listen to those words again. Spreading the good news everywhere about Christmas times and what Christmas time and what it means. And you listen to the whole song and it never tells you what it means. Good news. Good news. Christmas means something. We're not going to tell you what it means. <laughs> this song celebrates the true meaning of Christmas. We're just not even going to bother trying to state what that true meaning is. Jesus shows up and he says, believe in this good news. And sometimes we think what he means is this kind of, take this irrational leap of faith into this good news that can mean anything you want as long as you deeply really want it to be true. It's true for you. The true meaning of life. Let's celebrate it. Let's just not try to say what it is. The true meaning of Christmas, so special, let's just not even try to define it. Because believing is so much more mystical and spiritual than that. And as long as you want it to be true, well, good for you. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. How do we know? Well, listen to verse 14. After John was arrested... First of all, Jesus is not playing games. He's preaching a message that can get you thrown in prison and killed. You can't afford to be sappy and sentimental when that much is at stake. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel means something, and God is the one who gets to tell us what it means. Jesus isn't saying, be, believe something as long as it works for you. 
He's saying, I, I, am, I am preaching good news that God intends to be proclaimed. That is the thing you must believe. And now some of us who have been Presbyterian for a while start to get really excited because we like rational stuff. Purely rational belief. Can we go there? Can we go from one extreme to the other? If our culture tends to celebrate irrational belief, doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you just feel real intense about it. We come to this kind of purely intellectual, cold, facts-only version. And, and if you think that way, and, and I know what it's like to think that way because that is how I began my Christian life. This, this is what I thought faith was when I became a Christian. Jesus was very patient with me. If we think that, then, then it sounds like Jesus is saying to us, I'm not really interested in a whole person relationship with you. I kind of just want your brain. And as long as you'll accept certain basic facts about me, that's all I'm really asking for. Do you believe I was born roughly 2,000 years ago? Do you believe I died? Do you believe I rose again? I believe all that. Just with your brain? Yeah, Jesus, just with my brain. Okay, we're good. As long as you only believe it with your brain, as long as you're not giving me your whole self, because really I'm just interested in the facts. Jesus is not like that. Right? This is the same person who said, here is the most basic commandment that should govern all of your life. God is out there. Love him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. Yes, with your mind. Yes, with what you believe. The facts. But not just with that. Entrust your whole self to this good news. Believe with your whole person. So we're going to do a little bit of Latin lesson for a moment to keep some of this straight. People in former centuries when Latin was really popular would use two different words to talk about believing the gospel. One was ascensus. It means acknowledging that facts are true. And Christian faith involves that. It involves saying, yeah, Jesus isn't a legend. He's not a myth who makes us feel better about ourselves. He's a real person. And when we talk about his birth at Christmas, we're not talking about a nice story that makes for good children's specials for two weeks in the winter. We're talking about a, a real baby with lungs and a liver and a spleen and cells. A real baby, a real life, a real death, an actual resurrection from death. When Jesus says believe, part of what he means is accept these facts as true. It's embedded in a real story. John was arrested, thrown in a real jail by a real bad ruler. 
And Jesus had to walk into Galilee on real roads with real dust, smelling real donkey dung. Real facts, real world, but that's not all. When Jesus says believe in the gospel, it also includes this other aspect that Latin writers called fiducia. It means entrusting everything you are to someone else's care. Some of you are going, ooh, I know an English word that's like that, fiduciary. That's, you're probably lawyers. When we use that English word, what we mean is this other person understands this thing way better than I will, so I'm going to entrust myself to their care. So you have a fiduciary relationship with your doctor. The doctor knows more about human anatomy than you do. The doctor knows more about disease than you ever will. The doctor knows more about medicines and prescriptions and surgeries and procedures. The doctor understands these things better than you do. And so you trust yourself to that doctor's care. It's a fiduciary relationship. You're entrusting yourself to their care because of their greater understanding than you will ever have. Now, in our legal system, if that trust gets abused, the doctor's in bad trouble. If the doctor recommends this surgery just to line his or her pockets with more money when you didn't really need it, that's a violation of that trust. Similar relationship with a financial advisor, a fiduciary relationship. The financial advisor is not supposed to recommend things for you in terms of investment that will earn them more money. They're supposed to first think about what's good for you. Now, I don't understand investments that well. I don't know stuff about the stock market. Compound interest, how do we do that formula again? Right, tax law, all that stuff. I need someone giving me advice, someone who knows way more than I ever will. And because they have that wisdom and expertise, I entrust everything, all my investments (laughs) to them. If that trust is violated, then in our legal system, they're in big trouble. Here's the good news. Jesus will never violate that trust. He calls you to assent to facts about him with your mind, to believe that they truly are true, but he calls you to far more than that. He calls you to entrust your whole self to his care. Entrust your mind, everything you believe, every fact you accept as true. Entrust all of that believing to Him. Entrust all of your desires and emotions and frustrations and pain. Give all of that to Him. Entrust your will, your behaviors, your actions, your choices, all to Him. Give it all to Him. He understands more about all of it than you ever will. And He will never violate that trust. He will always do for you what is best, even if you can't fully comprehend it. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus says, trust me with your whole person because I am worthy of your trust. Repent 
and believe in this good news, the kingdom. I have drawn it near. I am doing everything necessary for God's vision for your best and the best of the whole world to become reality. It will be better for you to trust me than you can possibly imagine. I will never violate your trust, Jesus says. Repent and believe in the gospel. And once you do that, you don't ever get to go back to normal. Once you repent and believe, you've started something that never stops. If you get a happy light for Christmas, you're supposed to take it out of the box. You're supposed to plug it in. You're supposed to turn it on and let that bright light shine all over your face and make you feel better than you would if you lived in a cave. But you're supposed to do that more than once. I don't get to send the thing back because, well, I tried it once and I'm, I'm no more happy today, right? I, I used it yesterday. Hadn't done me any good today. No, you're supposed to keep using it. Repent and believe. Make a beginning. Take the gift out of the box. But don't stop. Use it every day. So where are you? Maybe you've never repented and believed. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus with more than just your mind. You, you never really had true faith in him because you've, you've never started with this relationship that needs to be restored. Today is a good day to repent and believe the gospel. But maybe you don't need to make that beginning because you've done that already. Today is still a good day to repent and believe. We do that every day. Why? Because there's no going back. Jesus came to bring the power of God's kingdom into our world. And there's no taking that away. There's no going back. We, we always want our relationship with our Father to be whole. That's the posture of repentance every day. We always want to entrust our whole self to the only Savior who understands us better than we will ever understand ourselves and who will never violate that trust. It is always a good day to repent and believe the good news about Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, come near to us. Help us, help us to do what you have called us to do. Some of us need to do that for the first time. We have never repented. Maybe we did in that moralistic way or a humanistic way, but, but not in the way that you meant. Some of us have never believed in the way that you meant. Make this a great day of celebration and joy, a good day to make a beginning. Some of us have done these things and we need to grow. We, our, our repentance needs to grow. Our gratitude for our relationship with the Father needs to increase. Our trust in you needs to grow. Do whatever work you need to do in our hearts, Lord, and make us glad 
Make us glad to follow you now and every day, we pray in your name. Amen.